0: All right, guys, so there's plenty more prayer requests, so if you didn't get a prayer sheet, you can do so, and uh, more to pray through. For now, though, we're going to turn our attention to this next lesson in getting to know the Old Testament, and technically, this is Lesson 7 in this series, Getting to Know the Old Testament, but tonight, we come to the fifth book of the Bible, which is Deuteronomy, and with the fifth book, we close the first division of the Bible, which is the Torah, First five books go together, they're written together by Moses, and they're very special for several reasons. For one, they mark the beginning of God's written revelation to mankind. God had never revealed himself so directly and intimately before. In addition, they they tell the beginning of everything. The Torah fills us in on the beginning of creation, and the beginning of Israel, and along those lines, the Torah also lays the foundation for God's plan of salvation, that plan is for all the nations. It would continue to unfold throughout redemptive history. But you're not going to understand that plan unless you appreciate the beginning of that plan. And that's found in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We could go on. It's, it's hard to overstate the importance of the Torah or the Pentateuch uh, to the Bible itself. Well, when it comes to the first five books, Deuteronomy itself stands out. That's because Deuteronomy is kind of like a commentary on the rest of the Torah. The action slows down in Deuteronomy. There are not a lot of events, not not a lot of big things happen per se. But don't let that lull you to sleep. In Deuteronomy, Moses reflects on the past, present, and future for Israel. He's helping them understand everything that's happened to them so far, everything that's been revealed to them so far, just to process it all, you might say that From here on out, it will go well for them. But Deuteronomy is is so great in helping them and us to understand the heart or the spirit of the law or the Torah. What's God really up to with this nation of Israel? What's he doing here? Why is he giving them this land? Why is it such a big deal? What does God really want from this people? And what does the future hold for them? And the questions that have been building throughout the Torah get answered here. Deuteronomy is home to some very clear and powerful teaching on God, man, sin, salvation. There's A lot of good stuff in here. Promises of the Messiah even show up. It's Just overall kind of a powerhouse of a book in the Old Testament. This explains why some call it the Romans of the Old Testament. This also explains why Deuteronomy is the third most quoted book in the New Testament after Psalms and Isaiah. But Deuteronomy is the most quoted book by Jesus. Jesus heavily relied on the teaching of Deuteronomy and and his teaching and his living. For example, when he was tempted by Satan in, of all places, the wilderness, to refute that temptation three times he quotes scripture. And each time those quotes come from Deuteronomy. No doubt Jesus spent quite a bit of time hearing, reading, memorizing God's word from Deuteronomy. What is it about this book that Jesus found so helpful? Hopefully tonight we'll get a little glimpse of that. We can't go into detail on all the particulars, but hopefully even this big picture overview will give you a better understanding and appreciation for one of the most important books of the Old Testament. And so let's get into that now. You can turn to Deuteronomy chapter one. We'll be all all over uh, throughout the evening. But we'll start with basic background, the author, audience, aim, all that good stuff. Beginning with just the title, straightforward. You know, the Hebrew title, uh, uh, they always took the the first few words of the book to to originate the title. Not very creative, but simple. And so the first words are these are the words. That's what they call Deuteronomy. These are the words. But later in the Septuagint, it was called uh, Deuteronomy. It means second law. Deutero means second. Namas means law, second law. But don't let that mislead you. It's not a second giving of the law. Rather, it's an exposition, an explanation of the first law, the law that God gave at Sinai. The author is Moses, to round out the Torah. We do believe Moses wrote the whole thing. It's attested, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 31, verse 24, just throughout. Later, Old Testament books will point back to the, the law, the Torah, as the book of Moses and affirm Mosaic authorship. Same thing in the New Testament, like Acts 3, Peter quotes Deuteronomy. He attributes it to Moses. The the apostles, Jesus, believed Moses wrote these words. That's good enough for us. The one little exception might be Deuteronomy 32, verse 48, through the end of the book, which records the death of Moses and the burial of Moses by God himself. I guess Moses could have prophetically written about that himself, but most actually believe that Joshua wrote that, added it to the end of Deuteronomy right before he took over and likewise wrote Joshua. And it's probably the best option that just Joshua uh, penned the final record of the death of Moses. Okay, the audience. Who's the audience of Deuteronomy? This one is squarely uh, the second generation of Israel after the Exodus. They're the direct recipients of Deuteronomy. But Moses makes clear though, everything he says in here is for all Israel from then on. It's not just the second generation, but with them and their posterity keep in mind, though, this is kind of interesting, but at the time of Deuteronomy, it's right before the conquest, that there was no one in Israel over 60 years, right? Because they all just died in the wilderness. There were no senior citizens. Everyone from the previous generation had died in the wilderness. And so at most, you have a group of people who are between 40 and 60 years old at this point. Those were the people who at the time of rebellion were under 20, so they lived, they survived. They were, they were going to carry things forward. Now they're between 40 and 60. That's the, the senior most person, apart from Moses, who himself is 120. He's twice as old as the oldest Israelite at this point. Everyone else would have been under 40 years old. They were born in the wilderness. That's, that's all they ever knew. And certainly those people were tired of living in the wilderness. This was not some promised land. They were going to be ready to take this land of promise, provided they were not unfaithful like the first generation. Okay, the date of Deuteronomy, it's all basically 1406 BC, 40 years after the Exodus. We were now after the wilderness wanderings. This is 40 years later. Specifically, according to chapter 1, verse 3, it's the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year after the Exodus. So this is at the end. The conquest, I mean, you turn the page to Joshua and it's about to begin. And like Leviticus, if you remember, there's not a lot of narrative in Deuteronomy, which means there's not a lot of stories or events or battles. There's a few things that happen, but it's mostly Moses exhorting based on the law. And all of it takes place in about a one month time frame. Now, let's talk about the setting, though. And uh, I don't have a handout for this, but if you have a study Bible, one of the best things is just turn to the back and you have like a little atlas of maps or whatever. Just turn to that now, find like the, the one on the conquest, just if you want, just for bonus points. But there's always a map about the conquest or the, the here it is, the Exodus route and the conquest of Canaan. You'll, just if you want to, as I'm explaining, you'll get a little visual of where they are right now. But it's a very unique setting, to the book of Deuteronomy. Hey, It's the 40th year after the Exodus. The time of the wilderness wandering has come to an end. We saw that at the end of Numbers. Israel had been in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion and unbelief. But after the first generation died off, God was ready to bring the second generation into the land. So he told them to go north and they go to the, the plains of Moab, which is... Uh, really on the east side of the Jordan, opposite Jericho, you know, south of Sea of Galilee, south of the Dead Sea. You'll probably see a place called Moab or the plains of Moab. That's where they're camped out now. On the way there from the wilderness, they had to pass through the, the land of some other nations. Some of these nations opposed them. Two in particular were Sihon and Og. These were two kings of the Amorites. But God delivered them into Israel's hands. This event started to put the fear of God into the remainder of the nations and people groups who were living in these territories. But that area east of the Jordan, it's nice and all, but it's not the promised land, the land that God had promised to them that was on the other side of the Jordan. And so God is getting them ready to cross that Jordan and take the rest of this land. It's about to happen. But that conquest would all be for naught. If Israel was not faithful to trust God and love God and obey God, unlike the first generation, they had to be different. They needed to remember this God, keep his law in their hearts at all times, especially when living in the land, they might forget him, all that God had done for them. and That would be disastrous. So Moses largely writes Deuteronomy to this second generation and all future generations as a wake-up call. Moses was 80 years old. The time of the Exodus. He's now 120. But it says in Deuteronomy, his eye had not dimmed. He was still sharp. He was still active. That being said, he was about to die by the hand of the Lord. God was gonna take his life up there on the mountain. He was not going to enter the land. So these are his final words. He knows these are his final words. Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament to the people. But it's not about him. All he cares about is that Israel would just wake up and get it right this time. They must love God with all their hearts and make his law written on their hearts. Only then would it go well for them in the land. So this is a good place to jump to the, the structure now, the outline of Deuteronomy. I'd like to take you through the flow of these books so that you can just get a better grasp on well how, they, how they're organized. So again, these are the final words of Moses Specifically, Deuteronomy records three main speeches of Moses to the people. And some also some final words. In chapter 31, verse 9, records how Moses wrote down these speeches. He gave them to the priests and to the elders for posterity, for future generations. It's clear that this is the inspired word of God to the people through Moses. But Deuteronomy especially bears this, this personal style of Moses, unlike the previous books. Now here, for example, we get to hear Moses speak a lot in the first person, which we don't get a ton of in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's very personal. God was using Moses as a prophet to instruct and exhort the people on the cusp of a big moment, the conquest. Now, to help you further understand the structure and flow, I did print for you just a, a simple outline. You can look at that now. You'll notice how the book is organized around the three main speeches of Moses. Before talking about, you know, big themes, I kind of just want to go through a little bit of this, hit some highlights. It's, you know, helping you better get to know Deuteronomy. So just highlight a few things from these three speeches. You notice the speech number one, it's mostly chapters one through four. It's not long, but a lot of it is Moses looking back. And he really quickly retraces the history of Israel up to that point. It's kind of like he's saying to the people, all right, let's remember why we're here. Let's remember how we got here for better and for worse. But this is not just a history lesson. This is an exhortation based on their successes and failures in the past 40 years so that they don't repeat the past. Look at chapter 1 verse 2 as he begins. You know, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan and the wilderness. Then it says, verse 2 It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. You would read right over that. Like, okay, what, whatever. But as you think about, it, though, what he's saying, though, as he starts, and he's going to go on from here to recount you know, how they got there Horeb is Mount Sinai. That's where God entered covenant with them. From there, they were supposed to go to Kadesh Barnea. That was their launching point to, to conquer the land, to take the land. How long does it take to get from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea? 11 days. The point is, they should have quickly passed through the wilderness. It should have been an 11-day wilderness wandering. And then, let's get that conquest started. But because of their sin and disobedience, it took an extra 38 years. That's what he's saying with those, that little verse. And he's going to go on to recount, you know, why did it take so long? It's not, it's not like it's that far away. It took them a long time because of their sin, their disobedience, their lack of faith and trust in God. He's going to paint that picture. God had given them this land. He told them to go take this land, land of promise. He traces it back to his promises to Abraham and the fathers, chapter 1, verse 8. But then Moses recalls the rebellion of the people in the wilderness for not taking the promised land. That was from Numbers, remember? Remember? What, what was the main sin of these people? Chapter 1, verse 32. It says, but for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God. Just, they were not believing, they were not trusting in this God. And the rest of uh, chapter 2, he brings them up to the present situation. The plains of Moab, they were in the 40th year. Chapter 3 recalls that the conquests of Sihon and Og, those two kings of the Amorites, these, these early conquests, they were like down payments from God on his promises. He's showing them he really is going to go before them and fight for them. If only they would trust him this time. And that's why Moses is writing this. It's not just a history lesson. This is all to exhort the people not to repeat the sins of the past and to just trust this God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Really kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Chapter four, verse one, he says, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. It goes on. This is what God wants from them. And any success and flourishing God's people are going to have in the land will be directly correlated to their knowing and keeping the word of God what God has said to them. There's some interesting verses, like a verse five of chapter four. He's talking about these words and all the law. He says, see, I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord, my God commanded you me that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely, This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I'm setting before you today? Moses had a high view of God's word and the law. And from God's word, the people are reminded. It's only one God in heaven, their God. And they were going to enter this land and witness to the people around them who the one true God really is. Just just by this, this testimony, this law, they need to cherish it, keep it, worship God alone, not make a graven image, not go astray, he goes on to say in the rest of this chapter. And God made Israel holy, a chosen nation. He wanted all of their worship. He says at chapter 4, 23, 24, that God is a a jealous God, a consuming fire. He wants all of Israel's exclusive worship. So so don't don't blow it. Don't go astray. Now, what's also interesting, though, is in this first speech, while looking back, Moses also looks forward. And prophetically, he knows Israel is going to blow it. They're not going to remember this law. They're not going to keep the law most of their days. They're going to forget God. They're going to go after idols. They're going to basically fail miserably. And so they will be disciplined. Look at verse 25 of chapter four. He says, "...when you become the father of children, and children's children have remained long in the land, and act corruptly, and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger." I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over to Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And there you will serve God's, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. You know, later in the book chapter 28 focuses on that the blessings and the curses pronounced for keeping or not keeping this law and there Moses goes into much greater detail about Israel's future when they will disobey and with a stunning accuracy he predicts Israel's disobedience their captivity in a foreign land their deportation but eventually their return as well it's pretty amazing this is that that will happen but Thankfully, God's grace grace and faithfulness get the last word. And this is just the nature of God's covenant promises. He says in verse 29, still here in chapter 4. He says, but from there, from their scattering, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return the Lord your God and listen to his voice for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you uh, nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. That's good news. Thankfully, God's mercies are new every morning and he will not utterly fail or forsake this people, although they will utterly fail and forsake him. He will hold on to them and, and draw them back to himself. The first speech of Moses concludes verses 39 and 40. He says, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he's God in heaven above and on earth below. There's no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you. that you may live long in the land, which the Lord, your God is giving you for all time. This is just the first speech. But already you can see the themes and the pattern develop, and it's, it's more of the same. In a good way, it's more of the same. He's going to repeat this over and over, that there's only one God, Israel's God. He chose Israel by grace. He's made them his holy nation. He holds out life and blessing to them. He's giving them this land. They need only to remember him, trust him, love him, and then obey him, and it will go well for them. Again, this is just speech one. It's already full filled, filled, filled rather with a lot of good stuff. It reads like a sermon and Moses is clearly and just powerfully exhorting the people to, to serve God, just to know and follow God. Then you get to speech two, which we're not going to go into in great detail. This one's much larger. it's about 20 chapters. It's the big one. It begins in chapter five. Four, five, and six are critical chapters, though, in Deuteronomy. That's why I'm kind of hanging out here. Chapter five, he repeats the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. This was the essence of the covenant God made with them at Sinai or Horeb. These were the words of life. We often contrast law and grace, but this law was an expression of God's grace. God chose them first. They didn't have to keep this law to become the chosen people. They were the chosen people. That's why God gave them this law. And this law gave expression to how they were to live in the land and please God. And even that has so much to do with just loving God. And turn to chapter 6. Chapter 5 retells the Ten Commandments. Chapter 6, some key verses. Says, Let's just do chapter chapter six, verse one. He says again, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. He goes on to talk about how you should teach them to your sons, bind them on your your hand, your forehead, and so forth. But this is this is the heart of the law. You know, hereafter, Moses goes into great detail expounding upon the law, but this this is the essence of it. In Deuteronomy 6.4, among the Jews, is known as, known as the Shema. That's the word for here. And it, it encapsulates just the, the essence of what God wanted of them and, and who they were in God's eyes. They're the people of the one true God. What are they supposed to do? under the one true God, just love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Christ himself understood this is the the greatest command, the the essence of all the other commands. And and therefore, the words which this God has commanded, because you love him, bind them on your heart, walk in them, and you're good to go. It's going to go well with you. And again, after this, Moses continues to trace the Ten Commandments. You can see in your outline how The remainder of these chapters here, largely, Moses is expounding on each of the Ten Commandments. You can also see that on the flip side of your handout. In these chapters, Moses is not merely repeating the commandments. He's actually getting into the heart and the spirit of the law. What's behind these commandments? What what is God after? And we don't have time to look at these chapters, but you find more than law. You find the heart of God in them. Deuteronomy finishes with speech number three, and some concluding words. And the shorter Moses still harps on this central theme, he's exhorting the people to just to keep the words of this law and covenant. This involves loving God, fearing him, trusting him, obeying him. But all throughout, you get the, the sense that Moses is just pleading with the people. You know, here, oh Israel, just like, don't don't mess this up. Don't go astray. Don't, don't, fall away again he charges them to take this land without fear for god is with them and god's really going to go before them to fight for them if only they would trust him and be faithful now at this point we can transition and talk now about the purpose of deuteronomy but that should already be clear to you just in spending extra time talking about the structure and the flow of it the purpose is pretty clear you know, why is Moses writing this? Why, why is he giving these speeches? Why is he writing them down on purpose for future generations? And because he's God's prophet, he, he desperately wants to see them get it right. He knows the glory of God. Think about that. Moses is the one person who knew the glory of God better than anyone else. He, he really knew. There's only one God. We have the real God. We, we really do. And there's no other God. False gods are just that. They're false. Moses knew this. He tasted and seen that the Lord was good. His ways were better. They lead to righteousness and and blessed living and false gods lead only to, to judgment. Now, on top of that, he knew how privileged Israel was. Not because they were better. Simply by God's grace, he chose them. This God set his love on them. Set them apart. I mean, that's amazing grace. It's all per God's unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. But Moses also knew that for any given generation to to experience and, and enter the blessings of God's promises, well, they had to know God. They had to respond with faith, love, and obedience. They had to know this God and walk in his ways. Only then would it go well for them in the land. Moses had already witnessed, though, what was in the hearts of these people, he knew that this was a stubborn and obstinate people. They'd already gone astray the first time, like right out of the gates, they fall down. And, and he knows their hearts are prone to wander again. But Moses doesn't want to see that happen. So he writes, and you can sense almost a, a desperation in his pleading with Israel just to, just to trust God. I yield to him your heart, love him, follow him, and it really will go well for you. So to sum that up, the purpose of Deuteronomy is to exhort God's people to be faithful to Yahweh and his covenant that they might live long in the land. It, it is as simple as that, just exhorting the people to be faithful to God and his covenant that they might live long in the land. But it's perhaps best summarized in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Those are key verses as well. So go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. He says, now Israel, what does the Lord, your God require from you, but to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and his good statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Now, all this stuff was just for their good. Moses knows, like, this is how it goes well for you. This, is, this stuff is for your good. God's ways are, are for your good, not against it. This is what God requires, though. Now, for all Moses says in Deuteronomy to the people, he's kind of calling them to task. He's exhorting them to, to trust God and obey. All the while, he also has a lot to say about God himself. While exhorting the people... Moses also reveals a lot just about who this God is. And this really becomes a special focus in Deuteronomy. It's not just exhortation to the people. We learn a lot just about the character of God. So let's move on now to talk about a special focus in Deuteronomy. And that would be God's attributes. God's attributes really come out in Deuteronomy. As Moses exhorts the people to follow God throughout Deuteronomy. He also tells the people just who their God is. And now that Israel has some history under their belt, Moses will use that just to expose to them the nature, the character, the attributes of their God. So let's cover six uh, attributes that really pop out in Deuteronomy. And first, God is a jealous God. Back in chapter 4, verse 24. He says, for the Lord, your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And for humans, jealousy is a vice, but for God, in this case, it's a virtue. And Moses always connects the jealousy of God to God being the only God. There's only one God. He's the one true God. The the idols, they're nothing. They're, They're not real gods. And furthermore, God chose Israel to be his people, to worship him exclusively. It's for their good. It's only right, therefore, for God to be jealous for for his worship. He can't endorse false worship. In fact, for God himself to, to worship anything but himself, he would be committing idolatry. He has to seek the praise of his own name. He's jealous for his own glory. To what else can he give his glory? Nothing. He's worthy of supreme glory. It's right for God to worship himself. It's wrong for us to worship ourselves but he is rightly jealous for his own glory. And he therefore wants Israel exclusively to himself. He does not want them committing spiritual adultery. And when they go astray and worship idols, not only does it dishonor God, it's bad for them as well. He lets them know he's jealous for them. Secondly, God is a faithful God. Deuteronomy 7, 9. He says, "Know therefore that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. We see reiterated that God is a promise keeping God. He will always be faithful to his word. He promised to bless Israel. And just think like if anything could make God take back that promise, it would be everything the first generation did in the wilderness. Like they, they really did a lot to rebel against God, to scorn God, to to spit in God's face. If he was going to take back his promise, he he would have done it after the first generation. And though he disciplined them, still he he could not take back his promise to the nation of Israel to bless them and to hold on to them. They were his chosen people. He would not utterly forsake them. Even in the wilderness, he preserved them and preserved a remnant. You know, some of Moses' last words are an encouragement to Israel Reminding them just to be faithful to God. He will always be faithful to you. He will not leave or forsake you. You be faithful to him as well. And thirdly, God's a sovereign God. He reminds them that this God holds all power in his hands. He's working out his will and his purposes through the nation of Israel. And God is after after all, he's the one who lifts nations up. He tears nations down. Remember, God had already, just, just like that, delivered two kings into their hands. They just melted or just kind of cut through those two kings like hot knife through butter. There was no problem. Sihon and Og, they easily conquered them. God wants them to know that this was his doing. That's chapter 3, verse 24. He's the sovereign God. And, and this is told Israel that they might trust this God. You, you can safely Place your trust in this God. He has the power to save, to deliver, to keep his promises. He says in chapter 31 verse 8, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That's only true because he's sovereign and we need to know God is sovereign. And fourthly, God is a loving God. We are told to love God in Deuteronomy, but it's also told God loves us. God loves his people. He loved Israel. He carried them through the wilderness like sons. It says in chapter 1, verse 31. Yahweh loved their fathers. He brought them up from bondage because of just his love for them. Chapter 4, verse 37. And God's love is revealed in a special way through his choice of Israel. He says in Deuteronomy, he didn't choose them because they were better or more numerous. He simply chose them because he set his love on them. That's, that's it. He just chose to love them. Chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. You know, throughout Deuteronomy, Yahweh is revealed to be just this father God who, who loves his people. He might discipline them. As a father disciplines his son. But they're still his children. They're his chosen people. And he loves them. And fifthly, God is a judging God. He is a God of love, but his love is not to be taken for granted. He's also holy. Israel must likewise be holy. And when they're not, they can expect God's discipline to fall because he loves them. Moses repeats in Deuteronomy how he himself was kept from entering the promised land because he disobeyed once. But he did not regard God as holy and God's discipline fell on Moses himself. Something we would say was like a slight thing, like such a minor infraction. But God is holy and he wants to be treated as holy. Indeed, the whole first generation fell. And this was written to put the fear of sin into the people. That sin is not better. Rebellion against God is not better. His ways are for your good. And if you're going to go astray, well, his discipline might fall. And let's also not forget about those who don't seek this God at all. And who who don't love this God, God at all, and such people will know only know God's wrath, not His love. And we'll see this next week in Joshua, but you realize God's purpose in dispossessing the inhabitants of the land was His justice. You know that, right? I mean, sometimes you might think that you know, it seems kind of unfair. Like, okay, God was going to give Israel this land, but there's like a bunch of people already living in the land, and. How's it fair that they just kind of get kicked out and killed and sent away? And that kind of seems unfair. But you realize God makes explicit from God's perspective. He was using Israel as his chosen instrument, a sword, to judge those nations for their extremely wicked, vile, and sinful behavior. Look at chapter 9, verse 4 and 5 in Deuteronomy. Again, we'll see that more next week. But look what he says about what he's doing with them. It says in chapter nine, verse four, do not say in your heart when the Lord, your God has driven them out before you, he's talking about the nations in the land because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll see more of that next week, but all this goes to say that those who do not recognize this God as God, who do not seek him and follow him, they'll only find out that God is a judging God. Lastly here, attributes of God that come out in Deuteronomy, that God is a gracious God. And though he is just, God is also gracious in his dealings with people. He graciously, he brought Israel out of Egypt. Graciously, he brought them to the border of the promised land. Chapter 1, verse 20. And the people didn't deserve any of the blessings that they received from God. They didn't deserve to be chosen. Realize Israel before this, pretty much just as wicked as some of the Canaanite nations living in the land. But God saved them by grace. He called them to himself by grace, gave them his law by grace. He was going to reshape them by grace. Even when the people rebelled, God's judgments had measures of grace in them. He did not completely destroy them, but left a remnant. And though he may discipline his people, his mercies are new every morning. And God's grace and compassion comes out in Deuteronomy. For example, chapter 4, verse 31. He says, for the Lord your God is a compassionate God, he will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. That's good for us to remember as well. We fall short all the time, but uh, thankfully he's compassionate and gracious with us. We could go on. Moses has a lot to say about who this God is and all the implications that has for the people. But Moses, again, he knew this God. Moses, remember, he's the guy who said to God, show me your glory. Remember that back in Exodus and God obliged and he he caused his presence to pass before Moses. Moses heard the self-disclosure of God's glory. Moses beheld the glory of God and his character. And so he's writing Deuteronomy to give the people their own picture of the character of God. And as they beheld the attributes of God, they would know better who this God is and what he expects. But Moses also knows that When you and I, when we come to just behold the glory of God, it leads us to respond. And it's going to bring us to, as we kind of close out our time, a second special focus, and that's Israel's response. What comes out in in Deuteronomy as we look at it, we see who God is, but we see how it, it just beckons us to respond. And we're not going to cover this in detail, of course, for the sake of time, but just mentioning it. This is another special focus in Deuteronomy. Moses continually calls on the people to respond. And for as much as Moses expounds on the attributes of God, he does so for a reason, and to call the people to rightly respond. We've already seen this in our overview, but it's worth repeating what a right response looks like. And to go back to chapter 6, verse 5, you know, primarily it looks like fearing, God, and in loving God. Chapter 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Again, Christ himself drew on that as the greatest command. It's the heart of the law. It's not about keeping all these laws to earn God's favor. It's just about loving this God, which in itself is an act of faith, fearing this God, an act of reverence. Those come together to lead us to obey this God because we love him and we fear him. And so we've seen Moses continuously calls on the people just to respond by obeying. This is never meant to be this begrudging obeying. The law was never meant to be a burden to them. But because they were chosen, they should have walked happily in God's ways. All the days of their life. Teach it to their children. In all, what God requires of this people is perfectly summed up in chapter 30. So let's let's go there as we... Come to the end of our time. Chapter 30. Look at verses 15 through 20. Throughout God or Moses calls on the people to respond to God. But near the end, he he just lays it down. Chapter 30, verse 15. He says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity uh, and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you might live and multiply that the Lord, your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days. They may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them. It really says it all right there. This is what God wanted from the people is to to love him from their hearts and follow him. But we know Moses knew Israel was not going to do this. In time, it would be revealed that they weren't going to choose God. They weren't going to love God. They weren't going to obey God. And as predicted in Deuteronomy with stunning accuracy, they were going to go astray. And it would lead to the curse that God promised a national exile. What's also so amazing, though, is as God himself foresees this and foretells this, God knows what what the problem is here. Why why won't the people believe in God and follow him? And God hints at it, chapter 29, verse 4, right before this. As he recalls the covenant God made with them, they've seen this God's presence. But look, he says, yet in chapter 29, verse 4, Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. This was their problem. This is why Israel would fail. They were not yet given a heart to truly know God, at least not corporately as a people. And because of this, they're not going to serve God. They're going to go astray. They're going to be scattered in captivity. But God will Still be faithful to them. He will one day restore them. And on that day, he's going to give them what they need. New hearts. Look at chapter 30, verses 3 through 6. How, how God himself foretells this to the people. It's after he, he mentions how they will be scattered in the nations. But they'll return to the Lord God with their hearts. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord your God will restore you from Captivity. Have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Look at verse 4. If if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. You shall possess it. He will prosper and multiply you more than your fathers. Verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise you your heart, and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That hasn't happened yet, at least not to national Israel. It has happened as Christ has come, the new covenant has come. God is in the business of circumcising hearts, regenerating people that they might be given a heart to know him, to fear him, to love him. But Israel in the Old Testament would be the object lesson of, here's what happens when, when you don't have that. You have external ritual. Yeah, individuals were saved, but as a nation, the, the, old, uh, the old covenant was not like the new covenant, a covenant of salvation. They would go astray. They would fall. But God would prepare the way for their restoration, for their salvation. He would provide for his people what they needed. It ties into a Messiah, we spoken of in chapter 18, the, the greater prophet to come, and he would do for them what the people needed. And that really ties into our application for today as we think through Deuteronomy as a whole and just kind of finish by thinking how we can uh, reflect on it for our lives as the church, for we are the church. We are not national Israel. It's different for us. We read Deuteronomy differently from that second generation, because we know the rest of the story. We know the rest of the history of the Old Testament. We know all too well, Israel, they're going to fail. They're not going to keep this law. They're not going to love God. All the curses pronounced on this book are going to fall on them. You know, nationally, Israel is still under that curse. They they still are God's holy and chosen nation, but they're still cut off in unbelief and hardness of heart. But we also know that a greater prophet, has come one greater than Moses, Christ Jesus. And, and he came to lead all of God's chosen from all the nations in God's everlasting way. And by his work, through his spirit, God now circumcises the hearts of all of his people, enabling them to know him, to fear him, to love him, and then to obey him. That's a testament to God's grace. And a chief application for us today is the church is just to, to thank this God, to praise this God, that, that we live in a time where, where this has happened, that the Savior has come, the Messiah has come, the Spirit has come, and God is now giving to all of his people from all the nations what they need to, to choose him, to obey him, to love him, circumcise new hearts, new birth. And we don't throw out this law. We still find in it wisdom and principles for right living under God but we know that this law is not the means to know God that comes by his grace through faith in Christ. And our obedience then becomes our, our willing heart response to, to the God we we've known by grace through faith. And so accordingly, then we can resolve to, to obey this God ourselves because he still calls us to, to follow him, to obey, to walk in his ways. He calls us to choose life and to heed his words. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the love of Lord, how, how can we not? And so as we read Deuteronomy, we should be moved to faithfulness. And what greater privilege do we have? Knowing the Messiah, having the Spirit. We have no excuse to not keep his new covenant, to walk in his ways, to live with our mission. And we have a different mission. We're not sitting on the cusp of physically taking over a land. That, that's not the church's mission. But he's given us a mission of our own as the people of God, to worship, to witness, to walk in his ways. He's made the church into a type of holy nation, tasking us to reach the, uh, the globe with the gospel. And so now knowing the glory of God, the faithfulness of God, and the grace of God, uh, we should be compelled to, to rightly respond and do our part. Though these words were given to Israel, we find just strong application to us, to the church, Chapter 10, again, verses 12 and 13, that the heart. He says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? And it's no different today. It just funnels through Christ. He says, But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding for you today for your good. Uh, the context has changed, but the essence has not. This is still what God wants from his people. And I pray we make this our response to God who's so faithful to us, his people, and Christ. And may we be faithful to him in our mission. Let me pray for us as our time is finished. I'm going to have to say it every week, but I hope you read it for yourselves. Because we we literally barely, I think, scratched the surface of Deuteronomy. At the, back in seminary, they had electives where the whole semester is just Deuteronomy. Some of the big books have their own classes. Like a whole semester, you're only studying Deuteronomy. It's it's filled with a lot of rich stuff. Uh, I hope this just whips your appetite and helps you understand the book. This is all meant to further your own reading, your own understanding, your own feeding, as you let the uh, word of Christ richly dwell within you, helping you better understand it. Let me pray for us, though, uh, to finish our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time and your word. All of your words inspired, all of it's rich, all of it's profitable. But the, at times though, we find some of it seems to, to speak so clear and direct, it just stands out to us. Deuteronomy is among the, those books. You know, penned Moses so passionately and, and personally, these clear exhortations that they feel like they're written to us. And though some of the times and circumstances have changed, you know, the essence of what you call and want from your people is not. Only now we can thank you that you've, made provision uh, that we might be the people you want us to be. And we can now actually choose you and love you and obey you because you've you've given us your spirit. You've forgiven us in Christ. You've made us alive through his work. You've saved us. You've given us a, the totality of salvation with a new covenant. And we really have no excuse then, but we don't need an excuse, Lord, for we do love you. We are your people. And I pray you just purify uh, our love for you. And we would leave here today reminded how, you want us simply to, to love you. And then everything else comes from that, and to worship, to obey, to serve, to witness. So fill us with your love so we're reminded how much you love us. May we be compelled to love you and then live for you in return, of which we see in Deuteronomy. Thank you for our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.